Man, thank you, Hadley, for that message. And, and we can proclaim that, right? That in the wasteland and the dry land, when God shows up, things change. We can proclaim that because we look around here and we proclaim that when we look out there, right? Who would have thought our buffalo grass lot could ever look like this? A month ago, or five weeks ago, the staff was lamenting the idea that we were going to do summer sports camp on a dirt patch, and we did it on what looks like a golf course, right? It was unbelievable. God changes things. You know, the worst grade I ever made in all my education didn't come in middle school, it didn't come in high school, it didn't come in college, it came in the worst possible place. It was when I was in graduate school and seminary trying to get through. I was towards the end of my career, finishing up my master's in family ministry and theology, and I had taken a, signed up for and enrolled in a three-week course at Abilene Christian. It was a course I needed, New Testament exegesis. It was a required course. I couldn't get it at OC where I was, uh, where I was a full-time student. But in the midst of trying to get all this lined up and finish out and figure it out, I signed up for this three-week online course. So I was got the stuff online, got the prerequisites, downloaded the syllabus, which all that was listed on, read over a very, very quick cursory glance at it, and then put it away into a file. The prerequisites included reading some material, so I ordered those on Amazon.com got those in the mail and started reading. But what I did not notice because of my quick glance at the syllabus was that there was a requirement that in order to pass the course, you needed an acu.edu email. I never knew that. So the week came that the class was going to start, just a three-week short course, three-week short courses. You're online with the class for about six hours a day, five to six hours a day online. I never saw an online, I never saw an email, I never saw a link to get on and start doing these courses. I was still doing the reading. One week passed, one week is a third of the course, and I started thinking, man, I better do something. So I made a decision. I did nothing. <laughs> I did check my inbox, I checked my junk mail to see if there was anything there. The whole course passes about one week after the course was over, a month after I was supposed to start it. I'm thinking, what happened to this class? Professor gets sick, what happened? Well, I go out to the mailbox about a week after the course ended. I go out there and I open up the mailbox and there is a letter addressed, Mr. Jake Perkins from ACU. It's got the purple little letterhead on it. It's got the tiger, you know, or the wildcat tiger. They're gonna get mad, any ACU person in here. Sorry, sorry, Dockery's in the back, right? Uh, but I open it up and I'm thinking, all right, finally correspondence, finally something happened. And it says, New Testament exegesis, Jake Perkins, F. <laughs> oh, I flunked the course, which is bad because in graduate school, a C is failing. So F is like failing, 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 right? It was a bad deal. I had missed the prerequisites. I had missed the syllabus altogether. And I want to give you guys some hope this morning that this summer school, I know there's a collective groan, for especially from our elementary, middle school, and high school students this morning. But this morning, we are going to go back to school. But I want you to be encouraged as we start here, because there is only one prerequisite. It's not that you have an ACU email. The prerequisite does not include in this Jesus summer school we're going to start. It doesn't require a certain education level. It doesn't require a certain degree. It doesn't even require a certain age or height or any pre-reading. 
all that's needed for our summer series is willingness. It's a posture of willingness, of us to say we are students. And if you're ready to be a student of Jesus again, ready to re-enroll yourself into the school of discipleship, then I want to welcome you to this summer school. This summer series, as I said before, is going to focus on the specific times in which Jesus takes aside his 12 disciples to give them special insight. Times about things that we usually don't talk about. Moments in which he gives special insight into the Lord and into theology. But most of all, times in which he takes them aside to transform them into disciples, people that look like Jesus. We're going to dig into this. We're going to dig into this this summer to challenge us, to grow us, to move beyond ourselves, and to talk about some things that we sometimes ignore. Now, I know none of us want to go back to school. I've been offered several times to go ahead and go get another degree. Uh, Get your Master's of Divinity, Jake. Go ahead and see you can do that, see you can get a doctor to ministry or something like that. And I say, no, I love to learn, but I hate writing papers and I don't want to do it anymore. But I can get enrolled in this because the only requirement, again, is a willingness to sit at the feet of Jesus, to be transformed. And at the core of our school is a desire to affirm that all Christians should be teachable. All of us are people in process. A Christian, and the definition we're going to work with is this. A Christian is a lifelong learner, a daily transformer, sometimes in small ways, sometimes hopefully in big ways, but all of us are living under God's power, the Holy Spirit. May that be our desire this summer. May that be our hope. We're going to spend about eight to nine weeks digging into these moments when Jesus takes his disciples to school. And let me assure you this morning that if you're someone looking for something more, if you're willing and you have that posture of willingness to sit at Jesus' feet, then get enrolled, be here, and Jesus is going to do amazing things in you. Let's pray about this as we get started. Father, we pray this morning for our hearts to take the posture of a learner, of a student. Give us a desire to know you, to want to be led by you, a desire to need you, as Peter did on the shore in the video we saw. God, we pray for our friends that are going to be part of Go Weekend with us over at the First Christian Church this morning. May your will be done in that assembly this morning. May you bless them as well. And may your will be done here. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, though, before we jump into those times when Jesus took aside his disciples, we better get a grasp of how Jesus taught and how he connected and the world he grew up in. Because to understand how Jesus taught is directly connected to the world that he was taught in. So before we go to enroll ourselves in this summer Jesus school, we need to know that Jesus did go to a certain school. 
he went to rabbi school. This is all historically and archaeologically verified. Jesus was taught in a system that was deeply connected to the world he lived in. Jesus grew up in a small village called Nazareth, did most of his three years of ministry in an area of the Galilee in the little village of Capernaum, and worked in and under a system of education. Galilee was the center hub in the Jewish people and in their eyes where rabbinical schools thrived. It was after Babylon, 586 BC, Jews are taken north. 70 years later, they're released. And after their release, it is there that the people of Galilee reconnect and recommit themselves to the text. It's where they become the sect of the Jews called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees came up with an education system based on the synagogue. The synagogue was the center hub of the community in which education, transformation, and knowledge of scripture was centered. This was Jesus's world. It was the world that he was brought up into and the world that he taught from. It's key that we understand this so that we can know what Jesus is calling us to. So here's how the education system worked. And I'm going to have some volunteers come up. And my first one is Brixton Carr. The first part of this uh, little school would be what was known as Beit Sefer. Brixton's making her way up here. In Beit Sefer, young Jewish boys and girls, age five, and, and you can come stand right here, Brixton, and hold that sign for me if you don't mind. I am crazy, and you are too. So, all right, just hold that right there. Hold that up right there for me. Young five to seven-year-old boys and girls would come to school. And from age five to seven, they would not only be taught the law, but they would also be taught math and writing and different skills. In fact, the way that they would teach math and writing was still centered around the text. The text was most important. And so if a young Brixton was learning math, the way they would learn math is they would say, there's five books of law and two tablets of stone. What's five plus two? It's seven, right? It was all centered around the text. The main thing, though, that would happen in Bates Affair for Brixton's age, five to seven, is that they would start to work on memorizing. From ages five to seven, they would memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The best of the best, those that got through Beit Sefer, which means house of book, meaning book of law, would move on. And only about 10% of them would get to move on. And if they got to move on, they would move on to what was called Beit Talmud. And Jace, if you'll come up, Jace is our Beit Talmud student. Beit Talmud was ages 10 to 14. Jace, if you'll come stand right here. Now, again, this is the, these kids are smart, right, Brixton? Super smart, right? You're right, Jace? Crazy. I'm crazy. Not too smart, though, all right? Jace, though, would have been the top 10 of his class. To get to move on to Beit Talmud was a big deal. Mostly just boys moved on. The girls by that time, by age 10, were already helping out with what they needed to help out with to keep the family alive, Right? by age 10. But at Beit Talmud, House of Learning, the kids ages 10 to 14, 
if they were very learned and very good, would move into this phase where they would start to take on the text at an even deeper level. They would not just memorize the first five books of the Bible. By this age in Beit Talmud, meaning house of learning, they were learning under a certain rabbi. And that rabbi would show them how to memorize not just Genesis to Deuteronomy, but in your Bibles, Genesis to Malachi, the entire Old Testament. Now, those that could excel at that, those 14-year-olds that could excel at that and do good, it was about 1% of any rabbi school. Just the 1% would move on into the next education level that Chris is going to come up and show us, and it was called Beit Midrash, or House of Study. And House of Study was for the best of the best of the best, the smartest. Jesus, we see when he's age 12 at the temple asking questions, right? He's in this phase. He's talking and they're amazed at how much he knows his insight into the text. But here, these one percenters in Beit Midrash, ages 14 to 17, maybe even up to 20, would not just know the text and have it memorized. At this phase, they would start to learn under a certain rabbi. They would start to sit at his feet. And their hopes were that after learning from that rabbi for a while, that the rabbi would come to them. And if you were the best of the best of the best, I mean, you weren't just top 10, you weren't just valedictorian or salutatorian, you excelled, you were getting accepted into Harvard, right? Then that rabbi would come to you and he would say in Hebrew, Lech Akani, follow me. And these young men would leave everything where for the next three years, they would take on a training so that they could turn around after three more years and start the process with others and start it over so that they someday could tell their disciples, Lech Akani. So this is the world Jesus grew up in. Give these guys a round of applause. You get to keep that poster as a gift from me to you. All right. <laughs> I know that's what you want. Thank you, Brixton. <laughs> so we have Beit Sefer, Beit Talmud, and Beit Midrash. Now, this is important to know for this reason. Two reasons, really. Jesus, number one, grew up in this world. But number two, it's from this world that Jesus calls his students. So when we understand this discipleship system... In the world where Galilee lived, it's almost as if God wanted him to grow up in this world. Then we can understand texts, like our text today, Luke chapter 5, which you've already seen dramatized on the screen this morning, verses 1 through 11. Again, though, a Christian is a lifelong learner, a daily transformer, living under God's power. So with this context of Jewish school in your in your mind, running in your background of your mind, I want you to go to Luke chapter 5 with me, and let's see how this comes out. As Jesus calls, not the best of the best, or the 1%. Jesus goes down to the lake, and he calls some fishermen. Luke chapter 5, 1 through 4. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or Galilee, Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. So word about Jesus is already out. 
People know about him. Peter at this time probably knows about him. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now again, you can assume here that Peter has already heard about this rabbi. Maybe from John the Baptist, there is evidence that Andrew was maybe a follower of John the Baptist already, one of John's own disciples. But what, at the very least, Peter has some knowledge about him. But what's most important as we start this story is what Jesus asked Peter to do. Luke here is telling you a bigger story. He is saying to Peter, I want you to go somewhere you don't normally go. Yeah, you've been fishing all night. Yeah, you're worn out and you're washing nets so you can go home. But notice where he tells him to go. He says, Simon, I want you to go out into the deep. Literally in the, in the ancient Greek, that's how it reads. Simon, put out into deep. What Luke is doing here is he is recalling what the deep is. Jesus already challenging Peter. The deep is the same phrase that's found in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. It's found in Genesis 1 and 2, that the Lord's presence hovered over the deep. The deep to the Jewish mind was the place of darkness and fear. To the ancient Jew, the deep was a place where the dead resided, where spirits were. This is a place that would evoke fear in the disciples when the storm would come up later in the gospels. It was a place where they thought ghosts were walking on water when in fact it was Jesus. The deep is the home of chaos and anxiety and disorder. Now, some of you may say as a skeptic, oh, come on, this guy's a fisherman. He's been out there. He knows Galilee. Peter wouldn't be afraid of the deep. I get that, but that's not the point. Jesus is already striving to challenge Peter with saying, I want you to go somewhere where you'll know who I am. Who's about to call you that I am the Lord over the deep. So Jesus wastes no call, no time in calling Peter to a place from certainty to uncertainty because he knows that if this guy is going to be a disciple, he's got to be willing to grow. And of course, the Lord knows that we only grow at the edges of our coziness. We don't, we don't transform in normalcy. We don't move when we're comfortable. And so... This begins, this story begins with a move towards the deep. And then in verse five, here's how Simon answers. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. You can almost hear his exhaustion in that sentence, can't you? But because you say so, I will let down the nets. What a phrase. What a story behind those four words. I almost imagine Peter decades later sitting around the fire with new followers of Jesus, maybe even telling a story like, 
I'll tell you about four words that changed my life. Because you said so. Because you said so. Man, there might be an excuse, there might be a reason, there might be a scar, there might be something in your background, there might be a story, there might be a schedule demand. Peter had all those maybe. He had a pretty good reason not to do what Jesus asked. He could have said, Rabbi, let us go take a nap first. But he chooses in this moment to be a student. And this is a foundational teaching for our series for the summer. It's that a Jesus student embraces the way of Jesus. Not the way of myself. But if Jesus says go even when I'm tired, or if Jesus says get out into the deep even when I've got a ton of other excuses, I'm still going to embrace Jesus' way. I think it was Monday night at summer sports camp. I was teaching basketball, and I had the second and third graders Monday night. We were outside, and uh, we were lined up to play a game of knockout. A couple of our second and third graders uh, were in line, and it was a couple boys, and they were messing with each other. And so I did the coach thing and said, hands to yourself, you know, blew my whistle, Boop. hands to yourself. In which, I won't tell you, these two boys go to church here, so I won't call them by name. But uh, they, they looked at each other and said, we were hugging. And I said, well, so hands to yourself when you hug. And then they turned, and without any, any hesitation, started air hugging each other without touching each other and I was like you little smart Alex you know but they started doing this and then I got to thinking because I was working on this lesson that's exactly what I do with Jesus is I embrace Jesus for certain things I give him a tight hug when I need grace and I give him a tight hug when I need forgiveness and I need a and I give him a tight hug when I'm holding on to my hope of heaven how many times do we air hug Jesus when his way doesn't line up with what we want? I often find myself giving Jesus an air hug. Like, yeah, Jesus, I'll kind of embrace you when you ask me to love my enemies. And then I often find myself even moving away when he says, how about you serve those that gossip about you? So that's what Peter's showing us here. How often do we embrace Jesus on the shore, but loosen our grip when he calls us to the deep? I think all of us need to wrestle with that question. What about you? Are you following Jesus with a heart that says, because you said so? And also, where have you loosened your grip? Part of your life is not embracing Jesus' way. A student embraces the whole way of Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 6 again. This is the centerpiece of the story. When they had done so, after they let down their nets, even though they didn't want to, out in the deep water. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Now you may say, well, in the chosen, they weren't out very deep in the water. Well, that was probably budget reasons. You, can, you may save a lot of money shooting on the shore. You can send Dallas uh, Jenkins a, uh, an email if you want to complain about that. Um, 
this actual story happens out in the deep. And they catch such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled their both boats so full that they began to sink. And here's Peter's response. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. So Jesus is in the boat with him. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee. Simon's partners. Now the highlight is the catch. This lottery breaking catch of fish. But it's not the highlight as we might think about it. Today, we might really catch our attention. You're scrolling through the news or you're watching the news and you hear about somebody locally wins a scratcher or wins the Powerball, right? And you might think, wow, they're gonna, their whole life has changed. But in the story of Peter, if we mirrored that, the story would go like this. Local fisherman wins the lottery, discovers all the money he could ever, ever need, immediately gives it away because he realized who gave it to him. Or for maybe us today, it would read similar to that, but it would say local family strikes oil or local family discovers gold mine on their ranch, immediately sells it because it came from God. That's strange, right? But that's the point of the story. And if you're starting to get that, you're starting to get what Peter is doing and what Luke is trying to show us about being a Christian. Is that not only do Christians embrace the way of Jesus, a student of Jesus takes the posture of need. What is Peter's response? It isn't, whoa, I'm good. I can sell a bunch of fish today. It's Something has happened to me that is so grace-filled, I can't even be in the presence of God. In fact, Peter is responding in a way that mirrors Isaiah, that mirrors many of the other heroes of the Bible before him, that when you come into the presence of God, you are changed. He gets on his knees, and he's ready to learn. He's ready to be transformed. He realizes his need. I want to take just a second and talk about the stark difference between the posture of Christians. And if you're not a Christian, I'm not talking to you right now, but I want you to listen anyway. But there is a stark difference between a Christian who says, I need Jesus and those who say, well, I know. I know. See, when I need Jesus, I'm hungry for him seek after him. I'm teachable. I'm ready to learn. But when I know, when I take that posture of, oh, I kind of know the story, I've arrived, right? I'm done. I've stopped being a student and I've thought and made the mistake that I'm the expert. I start to stand in judgment. I start to think that others need me. If you want to know if you're in this posture of, I know, Think about the, next, the last time or the next time. See how you respond when somebody makes an interpretation different than one you always thought. Those that need Jesus will say, woo, let's explore that a little further. Let's get into the text together. Those that think they know God will get mad. They'll be skunks in the church. They'll total up. They'll leave. They'll get mad about somebody. They'll take off. They'll judge others. The I know posture in church only produces church bullies and babies. 
what it produces. The I need Jesus posture produces disciples. People who say, I want more, I'm hungry. Which one are you in today? When I need Jesus, I can admit when I'm wrong. I can forgive, I can let go. And when my posture is, I've already got this figured out, I know, then I know your sin and your problem. Everything works out of a closed system. I can see your offenses. You're messed up and I'm glad I'm not like you because I know what's wrong with you. When I need Jesus though, I don't see people that way. I say they need Jesus too. And I go into their life in a posture of a student. When I need Jesus, I'm free to study and explore ideas to be challenged. When I know the Bible is this flat, closed thing. Yes, scripture speaks truth and scripture is settled on many things, but maybe not on all the things we think it is because there's always more to explore. See, the posture the world needs, why this is so important and why we're doing summer school is because the world needs to see in us a people who are in process, not a people who say, look at us, we're perfect. I read this morning that the number one reason why non-Christians don't engage with Christians, 47% of people said the number one thing they can't stand and the reason they don't want to explore Christianity is because they think Christians take a posture of hypocrisy. In other words, they think they have it figured out when it's evident they don't. So much we can learn there. Let's finish out this passage. The passage closes with verse 10b and 11. Then Jesus said to Simon, after this miraculous catch, he hits the lottery. He says, don't be afraid. Now that's a mirror to what I said about the deep. Verse one and verse 11, don't be afraid. We're going out to the deep, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. So they pulled up their boats on shore, left everything and followed him. Now, I love this. Peter's just hit the lottery and he leaves it. He's just hit everything he's ever needed. And he goes, you know what? Take care of that, whatever. I don't know what he did with it. We don't know, it's all speculation. But he's found something better. Reminds me of the old would you rather question that maybe you've talked about. Would you rather take $5 million today if I'd offer to you? Or, or would you rather take one penny doubled every day for the next 31 days? Which one would you like? Those of you who are good at math, you may choose the right one. But a lot of us would go, give me the 5 million, give me the fish in the boat, right? But when there's something better, if you take one penny every day, doubled every day for 31 years, or 31 days, 31 years would be a lot of money. In 31 days, in 31 days, if you double a penny every day, you have $10.5 million. That's the power of exponentials. Who's a math teacher in here? Where's Coach Cab? Anyway, right? There we go, Sam, you like that, don't you, Sam? See, Peter recognizes that to go is better than to stay with what he's given. Peter wins the lottery of fish, but follows Jesus. And that's our final thing. Our final lesson from this 11 verses is that the student of Jesus goes. He doesn't remain idle. A student is always exploring. 
And that's the great danger for us, isn't it? It is for me. For any of us that have been in church for a long time, we come to Jesus and we take the benefits, we win the lottery, and then instead of following Jesus, we put the blessings of Jesus on the throne instead of Jesus himself, and then we get stuck. We replace him. We mistake the starting line for the finish line. We take a couple of steps of following Jesus and then hang out at the Gatorade stand and where we've become judgmental, harsh, and we forget to learn. See, the call of every Christian is to be a student, it's to follow. Now let's circle back around to where we started and we'll finish. Remember our synagogue school, the best of the best. Imagine being seven years old and you're not the one that memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. I don't know if anybody in here memorizes scripture. I've really enjoyed it. Last four years of my life, it's been a discipline of mine, but it's not easy. I enjoy it when I get it known. I don't enjoy it when I'm struggling or when I'm doing, I'm trying to do it for Allison and I'm like, hey, listen to James chapter two. And she's like, nope, that's wrong. Nope, that's wrong. I don't like that. But imagine being a seven-year-old and you get kicked out by the time you're 10 because you weren't in the 10%. And you watch your friends move on and then you watch a couple of your friends move on, not to just bait Safair, but bait Talmud and then a couple of those move on to bait Midrash and then they become the rock stars of the day, the rabbis. And you're just left by age 12. You've already started your career. You're a fisherman or you're a baker. But imagine all of a sudden this rabbi comes along and this rabbi goes, hey, follow me. Because what I want you to notice here is who does Jesus call? He doesn't call the best of the best, the one percenters, those that stand out. He calls fishermen, he calls a tax collector, he calls a zealot who was basically an assassin. He calls the outcast, the mumser is the word for it in Hebrew. He calls the dropouts, the average, the left out, the left behind. He calls us, the school teacher, the coach, the immature, the young, the old, the, the person that just got a job in the oil field. He calls the too self-conscious, he calls the failures, he calls all of us. And he says to each of us, Lech Bakari, follow me. And that's our call for us this morning. To those who are new to Christianity and to those who need to be recalled back to Christianity, to the on fire and to the burned out, to the energized and to the tired, to the new Christian and the old, to the sad and the joyful. Jesus says it again and again. In fact, you might say, well, they only called Peter once. Oh, contraire. He says it again to Peter in the same miracle again in John chapter 20. And he has to repeat it. When Peter's worried about what are others doing? What's this guy doing? What's John up to? And Jesus says to him, what's that to you? Lech, Bakari, you follow me. Come be a student. Come learn the rhythms of the Jesus life. Come enroll yourself in the Jesus school. If you need anything today, man, that's what we're doing as a church.
We're trying to be people who together follow Jesus for the sake of others, that we're Jesus students. And we want to help you in any way. With baptism, it's where it starts. It's not where it finishes. When you're baptized, you don't get a ticket to heaven. That's part of the package, sure. But what you do is you start a life with Jesus. You start to follow Jesus. You leave everything behind. And whatever you need this morning, we're here for you. Let's stand together and sing.